Hello, you are now listening to the Modem Podcast, where we deconstruct, examine, and discuss deeply technical data networking and information technology topics. Sit back and relax while we fire up Dial D and the 9600 baud modem and connect to the Wildcat BBS. Personally, I've always been a fan of the underdog. When I got my start in networking, I was the poor devil that got sent to locations with the esoteric and obscure hardware or protocols. This fostered in me a deep respect for the lesser known and non-mainstream hardware, software, operating systems, protocols, and even architectures. Today, we're going to talk about Microtik, and more specifically, about the newer versions of their operating system, Router OS. Now, this isn't exactly an underdog. Microtech's been around since maybe like 1995 and has an absolutely staggeringly large install base. It just happens to sit pretty well outside of the typical enterprise space because it was built to address the problems of a telco and a service provider of a new country that had been forming. And to talk about that, today we're lucky enough to have one of the industry experts on this platform and in service provider technologies in general, uh, Kevin Myers. Kevin, how are you doing today? And uh, more importantly, what in that rambling introduction that I just went through did I get incorrect? Uh, I think you got it all right. So my name is Kevin Myers. I'm a uh, senior network architect at IP Architects. We spend a lot of time doing uh, Microtik stuff, as Nick mentioned, and we also do uh, just general network engineering consulting uh, pretty much all over the world. Excellent, excellent. Let's 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 call it what it is. I think y- you run the largest microtech consultancy in the universe, right? <laughs> yes, we do. I'm waiting for SpaceX to go to Mars, and I'm going to go ahead and get my office uh, over there. <laughs> so I'm so, all, I'm all in on that. But yeah, we do a lot of high profile microtech stuff. We we put microtech in for publicly traded companies, large ISPs. Um, even got of the two hundred and something countries in the world. Was it two hundred and four? We did uh national isps in africa in developing countries um largely out of microtik for uh, at least one of those countries we had almost all microtik and they've evolved a bit since then but we started off with 770 miles of backbone that we covered on rf backbone that moved to fiber but they originally started with microtik routers and mpls okay so it's pretty safe to say that you um you can you can rumble when it comes to the microtech gear you've got a fair bit of experience with that and i think yeah i've powered them on before okay <laughs> all right great to know so also joining me today uh the brains of this particular operation chris cummings how are you today chris doing all right thanks nick all right and that that new uh mic stand serving you well it's very sounds very npr <laughs> I'm filling in for David G, who is uh, busy filling in for. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, I- I'm going to be honest. Like, I am a, I- I'm, I'm sort of a Microtech fanboy. I've, I've got a whole bunch of their gear in my basement. I've got CHRs that I've paid for. My house is run off of Microtech gear for many, many years, and I've, I've done a fair bit of, of work with it. Um, it's a, it, it's a, it's a surprisingly powerful platform, um, and, and we're gonna, we're gonna take apart. I think why that is here because there's a lot of people that maybe don't really know that it even exists um because it's not you know what i would consider to be mainstream teal box whatever kind of uh, a platform um 
you know, so I think let, let's, Kevin, give us a little bit of history of, of what Microtech gear actually is. Yeah, sure. So like you said, they started in the 90s. I think it was 90, 96 is when they were officially formed. And then they um, they kind of got into putting taking taking Linux and then they made some modifications to do some routing and then they put it on x86 hardware. And that's where they got their start. And after a couple of years, they started getting into um, they started getting into doing their own boards. And they are today are still popular in the wireless internet service provider space, uh, which we uh, always call WISP for short. And that's where they got their start. They they started building stuff for wireless ISPs because back then in the 90s, that was a very rare thing to have. It was something that you would find in um, uh, developing countries or there were you know experimental networks being built out in places that needed rural coverage. And because Wi-Fi was still kind of maturing at the time, it was it was something that uh, wasn't done a whole lot, but it started getting a lot of popularity in the late two uh, late nineties, early two thousands, and so they continued to build gear for that. And it's funny because one of the protocols that most people love about Microtik is a protocol called MacTelnet. It's something that they developed, and it came out of that that uh, being born in the Wisp space. And it's a layer two management protocol that allows you to uh, basically modified Telnet to work over MAC addresses so that you can manage the router, whether you're doing it through the CLI or you're doing it through their uh, native Windows management software called Winbox. And what made that really attractive is you could totally screw up the config for layer three on a router, on a device, or really most of the config and not have to do a tower climb to get back into it. And and as you as you fan that out, uh, you know we had I think I think we had like sixty or seventy towers go down once because of config um, that we botched in uh, I think it was out in Arizona, and we were able to literally hop tower by tower and like bring them back online without a tower climb. And if anybody that's ever done RF work, you know I see Chris Cummings nodding his head because I know he's definitely gotten into that space. It, it's not easy to go do that. It's not like you just go walk into a rack and go reset a router. I mean, there's a lot of work and planning that goes into doing. Uh, a tower climb. So that's where they got started. And as they got popular, they started getting into other stuff. These started being used in small, medium enterprise, small business. And you even started to see them, uh, you know, pop up at uh, an ISP like a telco, fiber provider, and a number of different places. And as they started to expand their hardware portfolio, and they, they got a lot of stuff where I really started messing with them was I think 2008. And this is when they were starting to get into some boards that were really opening up their appeal to a wide range of people. It's when the RB 2011 series came out, the Cloud Core series came out. And they when those routers came out and they had some higher capacity um, interfaces, which I think they, they had two 10 gig interfaces and eight one gig interfaces, which back in 2009, 2010, you know, that was a really attractive thing to get a box that was less than a thousand bucks. That had that speeds. I mean, hell, even in 2021, that's still not a bad deal for those speeds and that form factor. And so we started using them at the telco I was working at. And I'll never forget it because we were sitting in there. We were an all Cisco telco. We had Adtran for DSL and fiber to the home. And then we had a Cisco core. We had a Cisco 7600 core with like, I don't know, about 30 7600s made up our MPLS core. And so our boss came in one day into NetOps and he was like, hey, I found this little router. It's made in Latvia. And it does MPLS. We were like, no way. So it was like throwing a piece of meat into a group of hungry dogs because we were so stoked that a $50 router could do MPLS. So we worked on it for like, I think like a couple of weeks. And I'm pretty sure I knocked down at least one router 
um, trying to get this stuff up. But we finally did it. We got MPLS working. We got VPLS working. We got at the time we needed to do VPN before because we had um, things sliced into a few different verfs at the telco and and it all worked. And when we finally saw VPN before routes like come into BGP, we were doing cartwheels because this little tiny box did it. And then we kind of moved on to the next test, which was, well, how is this thing going to survive in the field? Because everything we had was hardened uh, to spec being a telco. We had to go put things out in the elements. And so we had a cabinet on the side of a road. Um, this is down in southern Mississippi. And this is and it's August. And if you know anything about the southeastern United States in August, it's a little bit hot. And we we had to go put it out in a cabinet to, to do a load test because we were going to use it as an MPLS endpoint for a customer that was in a business park. And so I put this little box out there inside of a cabinet that only had a heat exchanger, like had no air cooling. So this inside of this cabinet was going to be 130, 140 degrees, maybe more. And I put it down there and put a one gig load test on it when I got back up to NetOps, expecting that thing like not to last the night. And it made it like 30 days. It was still chugging, still pushing a gig with no, wasn't a hardened device, you know, didn't have any auxiliary cooling except for the heat exchanger. So after that, we deployed them and they and they really rocked it out. And now they've come out with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, all kinds of stuff. They have L3 switches that they're just about to have that feature set out of beta. They they have a CRS 300 series switches that have a Marvel Prestera chipset in them. They're actually really good bang for your buck for layer two. Um, they can do things like VLAN translations and some more complex L2 filtering. And they've added L3 support. So you can do L3 at wire speed. And then their CCR series, which is based on ARM now, as they've moved on, is eventually going to have 100 gig interfaces. They'd already released the model number for one that I think was going to have... 12 25 gig interfaces and 200 gig interfaces and that was going to be like a few thousand bucks and uh, we're waiting for that one to come out so i mean they really come full circle in the in as far as cost and feature set and things that they've been working on from their roots in uh 96 and then as you mentioned to add one more thing they microtech was born out of a country that was coming out of uh the fall of the soviet union in, in europe in the 90s and so they didn't have any of the they didn't have any of the infrastructure technical debt that we have in North America or Australia of you know copper dial tone services DSL like all of these TDM circuits so that's why Microtech doesn't supporting those protocols they went Ethernet right away they Ethernet was already a thing and so all their stuff is all Ethernet uh, for that reason because of just the geopolitical considerations of the time in which the company was formed. Yeah, so they were Ethernet before Ethernet was cool. Exactly. But, but so you you just gave a uh, a torrent of great things that we can take apart there. I want to I want to circle back to the first thing that you said, which I had not even thought about before we started this podcast, but I've used it so many times it's second nature. Is that they have this thing called MacTelnet, right? And so for uh, folks that don't that ha don't have experience working on equipment that you can't physically touch. That is a huge, huge game changer because it essentially provides out-of-band connectivity as long as you still have layer uh, one and two continuity. So you can blow up a, a, a layer three configuration, and as long as you still have continuity over layer two, you can get into that device and you can re-image it. I mean, you can blow the config away completely. You yep. can say, you know, default it to, to where it's like factory defaults, still get into it and 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 reconfigure it now that's hugely useful for any kind of road access but especially when you're considering that there might be things on top of towers where the tower climber if you don't have your own people on staff which you probably don't the tower climber is going to be what 100 bucks an hour at least and you got to schedule them out 
Yeah. I don't even know. But like that that's a really big deal and, and no other gear that I know of ever has that. And the other thing too is like a, a lot of times when you're doing tower work, your gear doesn't usually fail when it's easy to get out there. And, you know, in my past lives, one of the things we had to do was fly helicopters to all of our, you know, all of our high sites. And when the weather's bad and you have a piece of network gear fail, which just always seemed to coincide, you couldn't fly up there. And you might as well have been trying to replace a router on the moon, you know. So if you put in a change, you borked it, you know, this feature is just a lifesaver for being able to get in when everything else has blown up and is just gone. I honestly, I think that every manufacturer should have something like this. I mean, we've gone so far in, in my previous jobs to where we have, you know, made sure to test out things like link local SSH um, and link local Telnet, Telnet out of the box, SSH out of the box to the next hop over to sort of simulate this kind of, of behavior. But, and this has been a, this has been something that's been in the gear for since I, since I've been touching it, which is probably about the same time as, as you, Kevin, you know, late, late aughts. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's something, I, you know, I hadn't even considered that for, to, to talk about for this podcast, but it's such a unique feature that folks probably don't expect, but it is unbelievably useful because the, as we all know, the biggest uh, margin of error that's introduced to any network is when a human touches it, right? I oh, mean, the squirrels yeah. can chew through the fiber and all the fun things for outside plant, but like... When the rubber hits the road, a person is going to cause more problems than almost anything else. And this is a nice way to sort of alleviate those or at least minimize them. Yeah, And even outside of towers, I mean, we we it's useful in data centers because if you've got that L2 access, I mean, how many times have you called up smart hands and they weren't so smart and they have no idea what you're talking about? And just yeah. getting a laptop and a console cable is like a four hour adventure. So. You know, whether it's in a data center, we do a lot of work in other countries. I mean, we've got a team in Europe, we've got a team in South America, and then we do the only place I haven't put a micro tick is Antarctica. And I'm like waiting, waiting for the the station there at McMurdo to like need a micro tick <laughs> so that I can get so that I can I can claim all seven continents. But I mean, really, it's you've done stuff in Africa and South America where you're in like heavily remote areas and you just don't have a lot of margin for error. And if something goes south, you can use MacTelnet to, you know, recover what, you know, in some cases, you know, would have required like getting somebody to come in from a nearby city and they've got to take a, you know, pretty epic journey to get there to go do anything about it. So it's it's pretty amazing to have that capability. It's almost like having a, you know, it's almost like having a console server, but you don't have to deploy, you know, an ancillary console yeah. server. So it, it's it's great. I'm a big fan of that tech. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that as a as a option. I think it highlights one of the the key features of Microtech to me is that the first time I was introduced to it, it was just that this is a Swiss army knife that can do everything. And it just has everything you need to sling packets all over the place. And, you know, the first time I ran into it was when we had a customer missiles in a previous life that, <laughs> you know, had one core router running their entire place and their core router died. You know, it was a Cisco box or something. And so we actually put Microtix router OS onto a laptop that had one Nick and just had a router on a laptop on a stick. Nice. Performed all of their routing for, you know, a week or so until we could get that 
until we could get that router replaced because did you put a stick in the ground and a platform on it so you could literally have the router like on a stick because that would have been epic in my mind that happened i don't care what your answer is as far as i'm concerned that happened but I, so and, and before everybody, you know, any of the listeners start going, well, you know, this is this thing and I do. I am 100 percent behind doing everything automated and I'm up here on my high horse. Microtik has had an API before almost any other vendor that I've ever seen. So they've had a SSL secured API forever. And, uh, they have Ansible now, support and now too. they have a REST API. That was their biggest yeah. one of the big things in, in V7 that they, they talked about is go, moving to a REST API. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big deal, really. But so, okay, so we talked about, you know, we've, we've talked about these, these sort of edge things that make it, uh, you know, surprisingly powerful platform, but I want to talk about a couple other things. So you alluded to the fact that this box, it does MPLS, it does BGP, it does, you know, VPRNs and let's, let's tease out how powerful that actually is because you could actually go to Amazon and you could buy $20, literally 20 us dollars for a hundred meg. What is it? 400 meg ports. And it'll do MPLS, RSVPTE, VPLS. It'll do OSPF, OSPF V6, V3. So it'll just fully IPv6 aware. And you can run BGP on it. I mean, you're going to have a bad day if you try to shove a global table into it, but you know, it, it does all those protocols. It's $20. Yep. And, and it really does. And so I'll say, so Chris alluded to one of the things that I say always about Microtik. Its best feature is also its worst feature. And that is the fact that it is a Swiss Army knife. So the yeah. biggest thing about Microtik is it does a lot of things and it does them really well. The key is to know when it's the right fit and when it's not the right fit. And that's true with anything in network engineering. But Microtik makes it so easy to do a lot of things that you have to kind of understand where your limitations are. Cause a lot of times it won't stop you. It, they, they make it as open as possible. So um, I think I told you guys, I was working on a BGP peering the earlier before in the show notes that was like really, really bad. And we had some overlap subnets and the overlap subnets actually, we ended up putting them on Microtik because the Cisco box we're working on wouldn't allow um, overlapped subnets like on the same, in the same broadcast domain to be built. And Cisco was like, no, I'm not going to allow this. But the Microtech actually would. And so that when you do come into those times where you're doing something that just like grates like against every fiber of your being as a network engineer, but you know, it's the only way you're going to make this thing work. So you can go back and build it the right way. One of the nice things about Microtech is if you if you know what you're doing, it will let you do some things that you know, you maybe shouldn't do without supervision. But um, and, and that's and that's one of the things I love about it is it does give you that flexibility. And so to go back to the protocol support that you're talking about, when you get into like BGP, OSPF and MPLS, that was the first use case that we had um, when I was using it at the telco that I worked at. We we needed those three protocols. Um, you know, our, our ASN was an IBGP shop like a lot of you know ISPs are. And we used OSPF to carry the uh, traffic for the loopback for the next top. And we peered into a couple of route reflectors and the COs. And so when we brought Microtik in, we were able to use all of those protocols reliably. And we were able to start replacing some of the Cisco gear. And, and that made a huge difference because we still kept the 
pieces that we needed to be there in the core. But some of these edge boxes, we didn't have to spend this massive amount of money when we needed to go deliver like a hundred meg circuit as VPLS. We could go put a box out and go deliver a VPLS circuit and pay a few hundred bucks for a box. And it worked really well. And I still do that. I have clients that we go build that out all day long. And so when you need, you know, if you need like a Cisco box or Juniper box because you need speeds or something else, then we'll put one of those out. But you could just as easily attach a Microtik CCR router um, or one of the smaller routers to, I've done them to, done it to Juniper, done it to Nokia, done it with Cisco. I mean, you can go take it and attach it to any MPLS uh, kit that anybody else makes and go build a pretty good uh, multi-vendor setup with that. So um, but it goes well beyond that. I mean, you think about the feature set that's in there. One of my favorite things that it does is it has a GUI for a packet capture. And that is like one of the most useful things that you can do is if you need to go take a quick look at packets and you don't really want to have to take them off the router to like go analyze them, you can actually look at them in real time. And so a lot of times we'll take a Microtech router and just bridge it like in between if we're trying to like packet capture in the middle of something, we'll either do a span port to it or we'll put it in the middle and just use it as a, as like a network tester, do, you know, test fiber. I carry one in my bag all the time. That's got a SFP cage whenever I go on site anywhere, like along with my console cable, because you can power the things via POE, uh, almost uh, all of them you can power via POE. So it, it gives you a lot of tools to do, um, you know, network analysis and network testing as well as use it as a, as a production router. So, I mean, um, depending on what your use case is, whether it's layer two and you want to do, you know, VLANs, Q and Q, S tag, C tag, it will do all that. Um, it'll do some basic shaping, which it's going to get better in their next version, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, but they, because they're based on Linux, they, you know, a lot of things you'll find in Linux for queuing mechanisms like, uh, PCQ, stochastic fair queuing, there's a few other queues that are pretty common in Linux and, and they're getting into things like cake now. So, um, you know, all the way around, all the things you would expect to find in a router um, from layer two, layer three, shaping, firewalling, things like that, you can do in a Microtik and do reliably. I don't think it should be understated how useful it is to capture, to be able to do packet captures on a physical network appliance, like on a router or a switch. That's There's a few options out there that you can do that with, and that is... Im, like immeasurably useful instead of having to go and build a span port or find an optical tap and then making sure you have Wireshark installed. And I mean, it's just, it, 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 it negates the need for that entire sort of rigmarole you have to go through to look at a packet capture. It just kind of does it. And, uh, you know, again, that, there's lots of, you know, not lots, but there's, there's a handful of um, platforms that do that. This is one of them, but that's a really, really, very uh, useful tool in the toolbox of troubleshooting a network. But you, you mentioned, you know, that some of the improvements in, in router OS seven, and I, th I think that's a good segue into some of the things we wanted to talk about here, because we've laid the groundwork in that, you know, that this, this platform is very feature rich. Um, it's been around a while, so it's battle hardened. It's, it's uh, got a really uh, significant install base. Um, it is armored for the elements. And one thing we didn't mention is it's extremely low power requirements. Yep. Um, very, you know, you, there I've seen these get deployed in solar only sites and they run for years. I will go out on a limb and say there is not a router or a switch in, in the world that is more power efficient on solar than the Microtik kit. If there is, I've never seen it. I, I've worked with just about everything that's out there 
in, in Juniper and Cisco and Nokia's world that gets into like, you know, industrial and hardened gear and, and the same for some of the industrial Ethernet stuff and manufacturing. I've never seen anything as power efficient. I mean, we a good use case. So South Africa, I've done some work in South Africa and designed some networks. And was it a year or two ago that they had ma- massive grid like issues like the entire country was on the verge of a grid collapse because they had kind of punted upgrades to the power infrastructure. And when it came time to do it, the not only did they have money issues, but nobody had initiated the process and you don't just upgrade power infrastructure overnight. It takes some time. So they started dealing with brownouts and blackouts and they had to start doing like load shedding and all these different things. And so large sections of their telecommunications infrastructure had to move over to generator power, solar power, all these different alternative energies and so all of these providers that had Microtik in were suddenly putting Microtik out as solar primary sites instead of solar to back up street power. And, and I mean, they were running like there were a lot of ASNs that ran on solar only in South Africa for a long time. And when once you go on batteries, you could take I've seen guys take a Microtik router and run for like three or four days on batteries. Yeah. I mean, well, last podcast you and I did together, I believe you had a power outage in your building, Kevin, and you <laughs> stayed running because me. your your microtick was on a a battery and you were on your laptop. So you you stayed running. And I'm fairly certain you could hear it be my UPS beeping angrily in the background <laughs> on that episode yes. as well. Yes. I think I think uh Jordan Martin, it was a network collective podcast. I'm pretty sure he edited that out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh okay, so you know, we've established the, you know, the, the foundation of what this gear is and how it's used and things like that. So we've got, um, we've got this, we've got this piece of equipment. It's got this, uh, you know, battle hardened, uh, operating system that does all these protocols. Right. And, and I think it's important to call out that this is a legacy code base at this point. Like if you go and you buy a device, it's going to come with router OS six dot something. Six dot something is fairly long in the tooth at this point. It's running on a very old Linux kernel, and that's why it's sort of been limited in what it can do in the protocols that we're going to talk about. But with router OS 7, it appears to me to be almost a total rewrite of the back end. And because of that, there's a lot of flexibility that's been added. Do you want to elaborate on a little bit on that Kevin or correct me if I'm incorrect there no no you're you're spot on no six has been out for a long long time so it's it, it is most of the features are pretty well baked I mean you know as as with everything Microtik, you know they they have their bugs and they have some quirks like any network vendor but if you know what kind of gear you need and you know which code to deploy you can make it very very stable but six is definitely something that is ultimately going to go away because there are a number of limitations especially when you get in the realm of IPv6 that weren't in the original kernel. And I think um, the I had one of the guys on my team do a little bit of homework on the kernel, one of the one of the Linux guys um, and Sajan, Sajan Parikh. I think you guys know Sajan. And he oh, helped yeah. me out with a little bit of Linux bits because that's his bag. And I think 3.3.5 is what 6 is based off of. And that's been around for quite a while. There's a lot of limitations there. There's a few security things that they had to patch uh, in that kernel. And they've based the new kernel on 5.6.3. And so now that you have a much newer kernel that they've built it on top of, a lot of the uh, IPv6 things that didn't work now work because we we have the newer kernel. So they're still, they're still working on getting it ready for prime time. It's in beta right now. It took forever to come out. It was kind of a big running joke in the Microtech world that, you know, it was a unicorn and we'd never see it. But 
Um, you know, one of the things that makes Microtech what they are is, you know, they do a really good job at keeping costs down. So, you know, one of the things that if you if you work with Microtech, you do have to be a bit patient, you know, when it comes to feature sets, because to get a $20 router, you know, it sometimes takes them a little bit longer to develop than it does other vendors to keep that at the right price point, because they got to prioritize the things that they're working on. But they finally got v7 ready where you can run it on a router you know it's getting there and it's kind of funny because 5g was actually the big push for v7 because microtech has been partnering with uh i think it's latvia telecom is the name of the main isp over in latvia yeah. and they've got yep. some 5g gear that's not in the market that's not in their product portfolio but will be at some point to basically help network uh the the 5g initiative in that country and so that was one of the big push and drivers to get the newer version out is they needed it for the 5G stuff they were working on. And so that all, you know, is, was beneficial to all the other gear, because especially the architectures that they're moving into, they're doing some ARM64 boards um, like the CCR2004. And so they've made the CCR2004 work on that legacy kernel, but ultimately it was really designed for that newer kernel. And that's what it's supposed to run on. So, I mean, they're really pushing forward hard on that. They've had a number of releases, some cool things we've already seen that have come out of the kernel or VXLAN. Um, they haven't added EVPN yet, but VXLAN does work and you can build. A, I've got a, there's a blog article I've got out there with a real basic lab of being able to do um, VXLAN, build a couple VTAPs and get it running um, over multicast. And so that works pretty well. Uh, WireGuard is another one. WireGuard, they added support for WireGuard now that they have the new kernel, which um, opens up a whole range of tunneling options. I mean, they've already got IPsec and SSTP and L2TP over IPsec and GRE and a few others. They've got Ethernet over IP, which is a proprietary protocol they developed for L2 um, over IP without the need for MPLS signaling. And then they've got VPLS, but WireGuard was a new addition. And so WireGuard's, you know, obviously gotten super hot in the um, in the networking community and the Linux community. And so that's one of the other big features that they were able to uh, to bring out by going to the V7 kernel. Yeah, WireGuard's a big deal. And I, I suspect that one of the other ones that they support currently is OpenVPN. And that's what I, I use pretty extensively. But yep. once, Wire, once WireGuard is, you know, once I'm running V7, I'm going to basically turn off all the open VPN stuff and it's just going to be wire guard. But yeah. one of the big things that I always saw when I was, uh, you know, following some of the, you know, the WISP community a little bit closer than I, than I have been recently is that there's this, there's this complaint, right? That I bought this gear and I paid, you know, two grand for it or whatever. So like the most expensive box that they make is what, not even $5,000, right? It's very inexpensive and it's, 100 gig ports or whatever, you know. The current big, I think the most expensive box they have right now is the CCR 1072, and it's uh, like three grand. Right. Okay. So that's ports. their, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, you know, it's a very affordable box. But, you know, some of these, some of these smaller providers are just, you know, they don't have a lot of budget. And so they'll buy these gear and they're, they're at the cusp. Um, and, and as a service provider, you, you have this ramp up, right? You have this ramp up where you're, I'm starting to make money, but you know, I'm, I'm still tight on cash, but my capacity is such that I need to, I need to step up to the next level in a bunch of different ways. Like I may need to start using BGP. I may need to have multiple upstream paths because a lot of these smaller ISPs, they just don't, they either don't have opportunity or the budget to do a lot of this stuff. So you get to a certain point and you're like, oh, okay, now I need to run BGP. And, um, I just bought this and I've spent my entire six months worth of my operational, 
upgrade budget on this microtick, whatever it is, on this piece of equipment that's $2,000. But it doesn't do BGP as well as I think it should. And so they'll ask for this multi-threaded BGP. The whole concept of this just makes me want to scream. And there's a bunch of reasons why, right? Because multi-threaded BGP isn't... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. It's not a thing, right? Well, just- I, I, do, I know one. I I believe there is one vendor that true really truly can pull that off. Because, well, let's let's pick apart what we mean by multi-threaded BGP. Because what most people mean is that if I'm bringing in a full uh, bringing in a full table with a single peer that I want to balance that operation of those routes coming in from that full table across one peer. So it's the updates, the, the right. PGP updates that, and that's what a lot of people mean because a lot of operating systems, uh, I know um, Cisco ASR 9K, like iOS XR for sure does, they, they be, I think they balance peers per core. It's something in that vein, you know, they'll take a peer yeah. and balance it across a core. And Juniper does something similar. So there's some things that they do to make it easier from a software standpoint to be able to leverage multiple cores because they're not having to track all those, you know, hundreds of thousands of routes for one peering across uh, the cores. And so that's the way that they've done it. And if memory serves, though, there's a newer white box operating system called Arcus. And I think if if I remember, they really, truly do use multi-core as for the, I think they have figured out a way to take a single peering and load balance that because they have some insanely high convergence number. They can converge. I, th- I want to say it was 26 million routes into forwarding. Like I'm not actually just receiving the routes, but putting them into forwarding in the fib in like 30 seconds or something like that. So they've done some like hyper, hyper optimization in, um, in BGP to be able to do that. But you're right. Like for like the 95% of all routers out there that operate as BGP border routers, BGP multi-core is not a thing in the way people think that it is. It just doesn't really exist on that many platforms where you can take a single peer and just load balance that across like eight cores uh, to, for a full feed. For a right. Second. And that was kind of my point, right? Is that it's, they're asking for something, but what they're really asking for is not what they're asking for. <laughs> and they want more efficient update processing. And Great, that makes sense, right? Because it's hard to come in and 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 calculate all of these paths, right? Because you're you're essentially you're you're calculating AS paths and you know longest match uh, operations, and that's hard to do. And then you have to push it down into the fib. Yep, and it's really computationally heavy. And then because Microsoft uses low power processors, like they have a focus on low power processors. You know, you're talking about workloads that are you know pretty heavy on your you know average Xeon or you know high end processor, let alone a low power architecture for CPUs. Right, and and you're making my points for me here. This is perfect. We're going exactly the direction I want to go. So you have this operation that happens, right? And it's computationally heavy, but it's happening on a fairly anemic processor. However. On this particular platform, you know, especially on some of the the, the tile-based boxes, you might have 72 cores in there, 36 cores, right? Yep. And you're gonna peg, you're gonna peg one of them when you're doing these updates. So one of the biggest changes that I've seen, and, and I remember it was maybe about almost a year ago when when you posted the video. Um, it was the first time I think anybody uh, outside of Microtech had seen router OS in action especially publicly. 
you posted the video of it taking in however many um, was eight. BGP feeds. It was eight, eight hearings was eight, or whatever. Yeah. And it was like lickety split. I mean, it was like, I watched that over and over and over. Like I was, you know, watching a meme or I don't know. I mean, it was just like, I couldn't get enough of it. And I was like, okay, well they've solved the actual problem that people are asking for. Right. So it essentially, well, you, you explain how they do that. And this is really the core of the, yeah. of the thing that I want to talk about today. What they've done is they, they've done a lot of really intelligent things behind the scenes. So one of the first things they did that was pretty smart is they figured out a way to basically they didn't, they weren't going to go, they weren't going to store eight copies of the full table. So if they were taking in a prefix and, uh, and if you were to go, we'll, we'll use Apple cause Apple's super easy. It's 17 slash eight, right? For memory serves. So Apple owns 17 slash eight. And so if you're, if you take in 17 slash eight or any of the component prefixes below that, if you take it in in full feeds in the way they do it now, you're going to receive that prefix eight times across eight peerings. And so it's going to store it in BGP eight times as eight different routes because you have slightly different ASN paths and all of those things. What they figured out how to do from a database optimization standpoint is basically only have to store that prefix one time. So instead of having to store it eight times, they put it into a database and then had a reference to it to attach unique attributes of that particular peering and that particular ASN path. So I no longer need to know about 17 slash eight, eight times. I need to know about 17 slash eight one time. And then I'm going to attach if I'm peered with, uh, you know, whoever the upstream is, whether it's Telia uh, or NTT or uh, uh, Lumen, you know, any of those guys, I'm going to take those attributes of that peering and then I'm going to keep them in a separate part of the database. And then when I need them, because I need to reflect that as a route in the table in the fib, I'll join those two pieces of data together. And that is, and I'm definitely not a coder. So you like, even though I'm, you know, the microtech routing and switching guy, you probably asked the, the worst guy in the world to explain it. But that, as I talked to the developers and they explained to me what they did, they said that was basically a lot of what we did. And I think what they've done now, I think they've also added the ability to balance a BGP peer per core so that they, you can like start to balance those out per core. So there's a few different things that they've done. So you still don't quite have this, you still don't have quite have this, I'm gonna take a single peering and balance it across all the cores. They've done a lot of tricks to make it a lot faster. And then they've started to look at CPU architectures, even though they're low power architectures that have higher clock speeds, because that's where we find, if you do this on a VM, and I did a lot of work in network function virtualization, taking MicroTik and saying, okay, how do we take this OS? and like really ramp up its BGP potential because the VM only costs like 200 bucks. So if you go buy like a couple $3,000 with the server, you can have this monster border router with, you know, a pre-built operating system. Um, and another, you know, the other Linux operating systems are great. I use them too, but there's something nice about having a pre-built operating system that you can just load and just have it go work. And so if you take that VM and put it on there, we learn that high clock speed per core, not more cores and a larger amount of cash in the processor were the two big things that really uh, made it improve as a BGP peering router. So those, so now MicroTik is now doing that on the hardware side as well, as much as they can. I mean, they're not putting Xeons in there, but they are putting more powerful ARM processors in there. So with that processor, plus the improvements in software, you've got a router that can go suck in two full feeds in, you know, a matter of seconds, just like you would with, uh, you know, Juniper or Nokia or Cisco router. 
So when you mentioned the database optimizations that they're doing there, does that affect your ability to view things like your adjacency ribbon and like your received routes from the peer? Does that get rid of a lot of that visibility or is it just an optimization internally and you still get to see all the stuff you saw before? No, as far as I as I know and what I've seen is it's an internal optimization. Like you can still see all the data because the data is all there. It's just stored more efficiently. Like you can still see that I received this route. So they know that you received this route from there but they're putting i think they're putting like some kind of a marker on it like they're, they're doing something on the back end to reduce the amount of data that they've got to parse through so that as you need that data to show hey i received this route or i'm sending this route they can they can assemble all those pieces without having to store the entire full bgp update and so that's the way that they're getting a lot of efficiency out of that and i don't think it's the only thing they're doing but when i spoke with them about this at the last microtech conference which seems like an age ago um, that I was actually on site at a Microtech conference. That that was the way they explained it to me as as to how they were doing that. Nice. Yeah. There's a there's a this goes you know to, speaks directly into the differences on platforms. You know, we we talk a lot about oh you know this ASIC and that ASIC, but like really understanding that kind of thing and understanding the data structures that are behind how the uh, equipment is actually performing its functions is not really widely known. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's an important aspect of the things that I want to understand, but I think that understanding that is not something that most engineers probably have time to, to spend, you know, they want to make sure the protocol's running and whatever, but like, you know, for example, Chris, like, uh, you know, changing from, um, uh, a, uh, you know, a next top, IP like hop by hop routing to next hop MPLS on certain platforms, you enable that it doesn't actually recalculate anything. It just changes a pointer inside the operating system that says, Oh, here, I'm going to use my tunnel table for this instead. And it's an instant change, right? So understanding the bits and pieces of how the internals work really informs how the uh, you know the under the whole understanding of the protocol in general on any given platform and and, and I, I really think that the the data optimization pieces you can't say enough about that right that's important in every aspect of computing it's not just networking right but like having sane data policies and optimizing for the environment that you're in is it will go very, very far in enhancing performance and thereby, you know, the experience everybody has. Well, and there's something to be said then about, you know, Microtech runs on these low power platforms. And that obviously had an influence as to why they had to build more efficient code because they didn't have the luxury necessarily of being able to just scale up um, with fatter CPUs that have higher clock speeds. They're doing like five gigahertz. You know, you can't do that in something that's powered by PoE. So, you know, there's a real benefit in the low power, low cost constraint that they have on their hardware and that it forces them to be more efficient from a development standpoint and use your resources more efficiently. And I think that that is maybe a little undersold and people look at the boxes and go, oh, well, they're just these tiny little boxes. And so that means they're they're junky. But, you know, really, that can influence making them a better all around product because it forces you to be a better all around product. Yeah, I think a little bit undersold is a a lot of bit of an understatement there because, you know, we in our industry we talk about you know I can just get speeds and feeds and blah 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 blah, but what is often forgotten is 
Now I have to power that. Now I have to cool that. Oh, mm-hmm. by the way, it's so heavy that I have to reinforce the floor, yep. which I have seen before, you know, and it's with, with this kind of, uh, you know, uh, optimization, you have a little bit less of that. And it's, and it's, um, you know, there are fewer things, you have different things you have to worry about, but I think, you know, those forgotten requirements of power, cooling, weight distribution, uh, power is the biggest one, right? You know, in, in the history of my history, putting in 100 gig routers very, very, very early on when 100, 100 gig was available, there were pops that they just couldn't be installed in because they didn't have the power. And in one in particular, the floor couldn't hold it. So, I mean, those are those are real problems. Yeah, no, I mean, ab- they're, they're, those are excellent points. And Chris, you did you did a, a really good job art- articulating that. And I, I don't think I've ever heard it expressed in exactly that way. But you're 100% on target that, that it, it is something that forces them into being more efficient at coding and more efficient in what they do. And, and it's really great to see them kind of really embracing that, embracing that they are this, you know, they have been kind of this niche provider and they're spreading their wings and getting out to be more and more uh, uh, prevalent, you know, out there. And it's funny because there, there can be some kind, uh, kind of a negative connotation. Sometimes they, it's a cheaper router and people look at it and like, oh, there's no way in the world I'd, you know, put that in my network. But there were a couple, you know, I could probably tell you a hundred stories, but I'll tell you at least two that are the most poignant. The first one being, um, there's a little company that everybody uh, follows these days called SpaceX. And SpaceX uses MicroTix gear on their launch pad. And it was kind of funny because I was having a discussion about this. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. They use it, uh, you know, on their launch pad and it powers their uh, powers their cameras. So and somebody else came back. They're like, well, yeah, but it's just for the camera. And I said, well, let's think about that. This is a camera for a rocket launch for a self landing rocket that nobody's ever built before. Of all the things that would be critical on the launch pad, I would think that a camera would be amongst the most critical. So, you know, you, you know. Tell me why your widget, you know, your widget that you're selling in your data center network is, you know, is more critical than a camera in a rocket launch that, you know, in, in, in developing that and going to Mars. And so I think that's a good that's a good use case. But I, I've had an opportunity to put them in some pretty large companies, thankfully. And there was some trepidation at first when we put them in. I think one of my favorite stories was there was large enterprise I was working for and I had to go. um I had to go up to New York to actually go do a data center migration. And it was all Cisco shop, typical large enterprise. We had all the latest and greatest from Cisco, all the big iron. And we were filling out like eight cabinets of a, of a suite in a data center. And we were supposed to get a couple of Cisco ASR 1006Xs. And that was what was supposed to go in there. And they were delayed on their timeline for shipping. And so I got up there expecting these guys to be up there because this data center had to go hot by the end of the week that I was going to fly out. And I was like, well, we don't have any border routers for MPLS aggregation for the L3 VPNs for this enterprise or like actual border routers for their ASN for BGP to take in full feeds. And they were like, well, what are we going to do? So I said, and they had been using Microtik like in a, um, they were using them as like wireless hotspots for like some of the branch locations. And so they like had a bit of familiarity with them, but they had never used them in a critical role in one of their data centers and said, guys, we could get some Microtik CCR 1036s and go put them, uh, you know, put them in and they could just stand in until the Cisco's get there. And they're like, yeah, we're really worried about that. Is that going to work? I was like, it's going to work a lot better than the vaporware you have right now. I was like, you've got nothing right now. You've got cables dangling. So we we so eventually 
we they overnighted for Microtech CCR 1036s because we didn't need like the requirements for this were very, very minimal. They were one gig pipes. They were one gig uh, transit pipes for the Internet. And they were one gig uh, L3 VPNs that we were taking in from an L3 VPN cloud. So we didn't and we needed BGP and OSPF and we needed to do some DSCP marking and shaping on the stuff on the L3 VPN side for voice. And that was it. It was very, very basic requirements. So we went in, put them in. Got them up and running, got the data center launched. Everything was good to go. Um, and we said, okay, the four to six weeks, these ASRs come in. And the first year went by. And I got emails from that data center about those ASR 1006s sitting there on a pallet. And eventually after a year, somebody said, hey, do we need that several hundred thousand dollars worth of routers that we bought? Because this has been running for like almost a year. I was like, well, technically no. So, but they they had already bought them. So they couldn't really go back and do it over. So the best part of the story is, this ended up running the flagship data center for a Fortune 500 company for almost two years. And then they sent me back up to go put the Cisco's in because they had they'd already paid for them and they couldn't get their money back. So I went in and put the Cisco's in anyway, not because there was anything wrong with the Microtics. And they ran that data center for, you know, for a long time, but because nobody could go back and explain why $4,000, $5,000 worth of routers did the job of $300,000 worth of routers for two years. I love that story. One of my, <laughs> I am, one I am, of my favorites. That that feels. I am really always a fan of the under underdogs. It, it just feels good. Like that's one of those stories you're just like, oh, I feel that in my bones. Like I, I if you've ever worked in enterprise networking, you just feel that one really deeply. <laughs> yeah, I, I I've had the pleasure of doing both. I I was before I became a consultant and started my own company. I worked in enterprise networking for a few years, and I've worked in provider networking. And now when I consult, I still tend to heavily favor service provider, but I do work for some enterprises, so I get to feel the I get to feel the pain of both elements, both environments. But to Very your point, cool. Chris, yeah, there definitely is a, it, I think in, in SP networking, because you've got so much service like area to cover and the budgets are very different, that there's more of an inclination that, hey, I'm going to give this thing a go. It's a little bit cheaper. It may solve my use case. And I, my, but it's not like, a, you know, you don't always have these annual budgets like you do in enterprise. You may have like, uh, you know, some private equity money or some government grant money, and you just got to go build as big an area as you can, like for this one big bucket of money. And so, but in enterprise networking, it tends to be, you know, very much aligned towards we want to make sure that we have this thing that it's got support that we can call tack. And so there is some trepidation in, in, in getting into things like Microtech where there isn't that lifeline. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And then, you know, in, in service provider networking telco space, there's also the mean time to replacement difference, right? The mean time to replacement for outside plant stuff and telco gear, service provider gear is significantly longer in my experience. You know, it might be up to 10 years where, you know, where it's just, you know, the cost is extrapolated because you've got truck rolls you have to pay for. There's, you know, environmental things you have to take into account. And the meantime to replacement is just a little bit longer. Yep. Um, but so one more thing, I think we're getting, we're getting close here. I have, I've actually two things. Uh, the first one is that one of the things that I am personally, one of my little pet project or, or, or whatever, um, is, is RPKI, right? We've already talked about V6, V6, it does all that. And there's a couple things that it doesn't do, you know, based on the kernel, like you suggested, but most of those will almost certainly be fixed. It's been able to run in, in IPv6 only and IPv6, uh, configurations for a long time, but with the new, um, 
with the new operating system, there's now RPKI support, which I think is a really big deal because these uh, a lot of these are service provider class gear. And with the advent of the Manners project and you know the, the trending towards signing routes and things like that, RPKI support is a really, this is a huge deal because a lot of these smaller providers have run on platforms or maybe just not been able to do any kind of RPKI. And now it's, there's a couple blogs out there that show you how to do it. It's very straightforward. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, this is something that we've been asking for uh, for a while that we'd asked Microtech about because it started to become a differentiator. And am I going to go get a, a Juniper box, an Nokia box, or you know something else? Because uh, there wasn't the support for our PKI. So thankfully, in their new version of code the, uh, that's in beta, they really announced our PKI. Uh, I want to say late last year, I think, is when they when they announced it yeah. and it came out. So yeah, so now. Um, you know, you can go load a certificate and then the beta code. And if you want to go light up appearing, you can go, you know, put a certificate in and, and actually do uh, our PKI. So, I mean, it's 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 great for it's great for us, because like you said, if you need a low cost border router and that was a roadblock for you, you've got that ability now to go do it. And there's even an example. If you go in their wiki, I think it's help.microtech.com and go to the V7 routing protocol status page, which is kind of a separate page of the work that they're doing since it's, you know, it's still a work in progress. I mean, they, they, they still have some things that they're working on. I wrote a blog article on OSPF and BGP and router OS V7, and I got it all worked up and got all the stuff done and did like IBGP and all this stuff. And I didn't have enough time to do RPKI, but it was on my list. And then I published it and then they changed the syntax for like one of the, like the routing instances or something like that. So it's definitely still a work in progress. It's still a little bit of a moving target, but, uh, but yeah, and you can go, you can go spin that up as a VM or you can go, you know, put it on a current peering and absolutely go do RPKI. And I think given the state, Nick, you and I have talked about this a lot, but given the state of the global table and all of the problems that we have in transit with things getting hijacked and security and BGP. I mean, that's, you know, just like IPv6, there's going to come a point, I think, very soon where you're going to have to do this. If you want to, you know, participate in the global routing table, you're going to have to be able to do RPKI. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's coming. It's already here, really. I mean, it's like V6. It's already here. It's resistance is futile. Locutus of Borg, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's it's going to happen. It's trying to resist it doesn't make any sense. You might be able to prolong it, but it's it's happening. Um, okay, so one last thing. I got one last thing I'm going to bring up, and Kevin knows what I'm going to say because I always say this when we talk about router OS is when am I going to get ISIS? So I am I am glad you asked that question. Um, the um, that is something that I have actually created a new thread. So I'll tell you what, you can link the thread in the forum on Microtix forum because that is my next big push is ISIS and segment routing, SRMPLS. Those are the two things. I We have a really good relationship with Microtix. I know their, their CEO really well. Who's Oddly enough, is from Memphis. We didn't get that in the history section, but he's from Memphis, Tennessee, and he co-founded Microtix with uh, uh, another guy, uh, in Latvia and he lives over there now and he's been living in, in Riga for a long time. That blew me away. Um, cause I don't live that far from Memphis. So finding out that one, the CEO of Microtech was from Memphis was kind of funny. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. So anyway, um, so we talked to them quite a bit and that was, that was something that I've expressed several times to them. As I said, you know, as, as this continues to be a platform that is used by service providers and by, and even now data centers are using ISIS and SRMPLS. There's a lot of data center fabrics, 
that are built on ISIS. Um, and so, and, and data center interconnect. I'm doing a data center interconnect right now. Uh, fortunately, it's not on Microtik because we don't have ISIS, but we're doing a DCI between uh, Europe and North America that we're doing a BGP EVPN uh, multi-site for VXLAN, but it's running on top of um, ISIS and segment routing. So that's something that I expressed to Microtik that this is something that is, uh, you know, I think coming. It's something that you need to have. It needs to be a protocol that is, you know, um, that's in your view, it's on your radar. And so I'll, I'll send you the forum link so you can go, people can go put their support in there for it. Because one of the things that's great about Microtik is they really do listen. A lot of people kind of gripe, they're like, oh, Microtik never listens to me. But they do pay really close attention to their forums. And they look at what people are asking for. And they look at the things that people ask for over and over. And barring like really, really high barriers to entry, there's some things people ask for in the RF world. Um, and if you've never had to deal with FCC certification or the certification of any other entity that's you know controls uh, RF communications for a country, that can be very costly, very time consuming, and very expensive. So there are sometimes they don't implement things because in order to keep the gear the gear low cost, they have to really kind of think about how what they pick, what they implement, and things of that nature. But for something that is purely just software like you know ISIS and segment routing, they just need to see the demand for it. And so if they see those posts in their forum and they see the demand for it. You know, they're pretty good about implementing that stuff. And WireGuard and VXLAN are two great examples. People asked about VXLAN and they asked about WireGuard like over and over and over. And that became uh, two very requested features and they, they finally implemented it. So I, I have high hopes for ISIS and segment routing. Yeah, we'll definitely put a link to that. And I've got a list of other links that we'll we'll put into the show notes for, for folks to go and investigate should they be uh, so inclined. But I think... That's we're coming up on an hour here. I think we can end on a happy note with with that news. Um, that that this pleases me. Um, <laughs> I'm doing my uh, best. So, <laughs> all right. So, Kevin, where can, should people be so inclined to want to speak to you? Uh, where can they find you on the internet? I am in a couple places. You can find me on Twitter at stubarea51. You can find me on my blog at stubarea51.net and on my company page is iparchitects.com, which is I-P-A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-H-S.com. Excellent. Chris, where can people find you if they want to find you? Uh, they probably don't. So I mean, just <laughs> uh, I am on the Twitter machine at uh, CrankyNetMan and uh, I am on my blog, which has been less criminally neglected than normal lately, uh, slash six, four dot tech. And, um, you can only find me on the network collective chat, uh, the Slack channel. Um, it's a good podcast run by good people. And, uh, it's a good community of folks. That's where I met Kevin. That's where I met Nick actually too. Um, yep. <laughs> and, uh, great place to, to meet and talk to people who are interested in kind of that next level of networking. It's so, the water cooler of NetOps. It is. It yeah. really is. It really is. And, and for anyone that doesn't know, I'm Nick Baraglio. Um, You can find me on the Twitters at, at Forwarding Plane. Um, also on my blog, forwardingplane.net, which has been getting a little more attention uh, than it used to. And of course, I frequent the, uh, the Network Collective Slack. That's how I met uh, these fine folks here. I'm also on like the Little Brothers Wisp Slack, which is a you know Wisp-focused uh, Slack. And uh, yeah, come find us. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Modem Podcast, where yesterday's modems are today's transponders. For more information or to request a topic, please visit modem.show.